Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Did you know that Gareth Barry played for Wales? That Bourneway was a country? Awkwardly, those were two of my blunders as we bulldozed through our next debate. Who will be the dark horses at Euro 2020? I'm Ben Snowball and was relieved that Carrie Dunn, Marcus Foley and Pete Charlin could at least provide coherent arguments. It's Game of Opinions from Eurosport. Let's dive right in. Welcome to the usual gang for a Euro 2020 special. Now, bizarrely, Euro 2020 will take place in 2021, but it's still very much called Euro 2020. Firstly, gang, welcome to you all. How on earth do you go about moving a tournament that's booked in 12 different cities? I think that answers your question, to be fair. (laughs) Complete and utter silence. Practically impossible. Well, theoretically, at least you just do it all again at the same time next year. But obviously that's not how these things work because all these stadiums are used for various other purposes, all of which have been booked up. Obviously, depending on how long the tournament ends up running for, they're going to have clashes with other events that are also going to be being held at this time. So it's different, I think, for something like the Olympics where you've got everything taking place in one country. This is this sort of very uh, unique situation that UEFA booked themselves into is exactly why you probably shouldn't have so many countries on offer because there's too many variables here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably good to look at the context of why they're doing it. It's it's an anniversary edition of the European Championships. So they were going, yay, let's go all the way across Europe. Let's have 12 host cities. And it's a lovely idea. But it also then became apparent, or became apparent, I think, to most of us, probably by the end of February, that this Euros could not possibly happen in the way that it was being uh, proposed because of the spread of coronavirus. Because teams and fans travelling across 12 host cities across a continent just looked like it would be impossible. And UEFA obviously delayed the decision by another three or four weeks in the way that uh, these decisions in football tend to get kicked down the road a little bit. But obviously it's also had a massive knock-on effect because the women's Euros were going to be in 2021. And they were kind of due to due to kick off just as the rescheduled men's Euros were going to finish. So that's now the move to 2022. Um, that's all supposed to be, again, exactly the same as the previous schedule just a year after. But, um, yeah, I suspect there are going to be lots of tweaks to both initial proposals because moving things just 12 months later isn't necessarily going to be the most practical thing, bearing in mind other stadium uses. We might have to like reschedule entirely though, because when the new normal or whatever it is returns, you might not be able to do it the way they want to do it. So it might be it's okay to have one tournament 
in one country in a set number of cities, we think, but to have it in so many countries, again, I agree with you, I think it was actually a lovely idea, but actually maybe now we're going to, well, UEFA are going to have to look at reducing this and then um, who do you then, who gets what games, like you reduce it down to two or three countries, did you down to just one? I think the logistical nightmare is far from over for UEFA. And it was a logistical nightmare to start with anyway. Um, so I was doing a little bit of work in preparation for Euro 2020. I was going to be doing some of the stuff um, for the comms department. And it was going to be a fantastic thing in London and across all the host cities. So in terms of different fan zones. So we've got used to, very used to seeing fan zones in cities, but they're, they're going to be kind of several across each of them. There were going to be kind of cultural stuff on the borough of Brent had just launched um, their city of culture thing for 2020 to tie into having the Euros semi-final and final at, at Wembley. And yeah, it's just going to have to be completely rethought. Something that was planned to be this big, this festival of football, this massive celebration, possibly, in, as Pete says, in, in our new world, might not be able to happen in the way that they planned. Nice one. Well, I think we can glide or segue into our main debate, our main discussion. You may have seen on Eurosport.co.uk that we were asked to pick dark horses for Euro 2020 or whatever you want to call it, Euro 2021. Um we have picked our four. Uh, Belgium and Wales have had the privilege of being called dark horses at previous tournament. But who might get it this time around? Uh, Carrie, let's start with you. Well, I was thinking about this quite deeply and probably more deeply than, than it really warrants because dark horse is a very subjective kind of term. I mean, England seem to still be the favourites, which is kind of puzzling to me, bearing in mind Belgium is still top of the rankings. No one seems to be talking about Belgium, and I think that's partly because people don't rate Roberto Martinez because of his time in England. But um, leaving that aside, um, I went for, for Poland just because I think they've been, they've had fairly terrible runs of form, but they finished qualifying very strongly. Obviously, they've got one world-beating player, who Ben Snowball, I believe, argued um, was going to be the best player of the world this year and deserved the Ballon d'Or. Um, so, yeah, one world-beating player, decent run of form. Um, also, the fact that um, Lewandowski plays in Germany and they're likely to get back to playing a proper decent football season sooner than anybody else just because they're well-organised and actually know what they're doing. Um, yeah, I'm tipping Poland as the ones to watch. bit awkward as I'm now going to have to assassinate my own Lewandowski argument seven days later. Thanks for that, Carrie. Pete Charlotte, <laughs> who are you going for? Uh, I'm going for Turkey. Um, I watched them uh, back in the last year against... World Champions France, they were excellent. Um, I don't really know quite how this has happened, but they seem to have stumbled upon a new golden generation. Obviously, we all remember that team that made it to the third uh, in the 2002 World Cup, and they obviously did it again six years later at the Euros. Um, in terms of international teams, Turkey might be one of the biggest sleeping giants going. Their international record is abysmal for a country that is so big and has so many fanatical fans. And it seems as if one way or another, they've sort of work their way into this setup where there's only really one or two potential issues you can immediately see. And actually, if it all comes together, there's no reason why they can't go pretty far next year. Marcus Foley, you're nodding, you're excited, unload. Um, I've gone for Ukraine. Uh, basically, my, my argument is on the back of, broadly speaking, two sort of teams win major championships. Teams that know each other's game inside out or teams that are defensively very sound and sort of grind out results. So in the first category, you'd probably have Spain and Germany. The Spanish team, obviously a lot of them either played at Real Madrid or Barcelona. So they had that familiarity. Germany, a lot of their players came through the youth system at the same time, familiarity. Um, the other side of the coin, the more defensively 
conservative teams, you'd probably say Greece or maybe even Portugal 2016. I know they have very good players, but their coach is conservative in nature. I would put forward an argument to say that Ukraine are a mixture of both. Um, more so on the conservative defensive side of things. In qualifying, they only conceded four goals, which is hugely impressive. Joint last title with Italy. Um, and I have a team of experience and a team that have crucially played together quite a bit. And also, they draw a lot of their squad from, from two teams, um, which again, breeds that familiarity. So I think if you're going to talk about dark horses, they're sort of like the perfect mix for me. Okay, and completing the lineup uh, is me. And this is a bit awkward because I've gone for a team that hasn't actually qualified yet. They face a playoff. Uh, it's Norway. Um, and I'm so committed to the cause that not only have I stuck a fiver, of on, fiver on them to win a year ago, um, but I've also dressed up as the Norwegian flag, or I've tried to anyway. I'm just missing missing the top bit. Uh, my case basically is that their team bears striking similarities with the Welsh team that reached the semi-finals at Euro 2016, uh, where Wales had Gareth Barry, Norway have Erling Haaland, where Welsh, uh, where the Welsh had Aaron Ramsey. Hang on, can we say Gareth Bale <laughs> or Gareth Barry? Oh, right. We all say definitely love <laughs> Gareth Barry. Wales had Gareth Bale. Um, and the second point was that they had Aaron Ramsey. Now, hopefully I've said his name right that time. Uh, and the Norwegians have Martin Odegaard. So two key players that the Welsh success was built on in similar positions to what Norway have. Um, not only do Norway have those two quality players, they also have a, a bunch of players that are quite decent around them. Um, Sander Burge of Sheffield United, Christoph Ayer of Celtic. Hopefully I said that right. Um, and Joshua King of Bournemouth, um, of Norway. Um, so yeah, they've only lost one game since October 2018. And Haaland just seems to me like he's exploded on the club stage and he's yet to do so on the Norwegian, uh, on the international stage. And I can see you all <laughs> smiling already. So I'm just getting ready to be taking the part here. Um, so so I start, or do either of you two want to kick off things first? You go, you go. Um, well, let's start with the fact that you uh, said Josh King played for Bournemouth, um, which is an interesting country. I've never heard of that other club before. Um, obviously, the big talking point here is that they haven't actually qualified yet, um, which is problematic at the best of times. Um, you expect they may well come through, although I think the Serbia team could be pretty easy to get past. Um, assuming they do and they do get there, um, by and large, I do quite like this Norway team. There's a lot to like. Obviously, everyone loves Haaland and Odegaard. They're playing so well. My concern would be that this team has been thrown together very quickly in the sense that in the last year, year and a half, Haaland was barely known. Odegaard was really struggling for playing time. Some of the other young players you mentioned were either playing at a decent level or they hadn't really moved on to where they are now. And it all feels like it's coming together a little bit too quickly for them. I think they will probably need another year or two before they were really ready to challenge, um, which is a similar argument I might make to Marcus's team later on. But I think that the, the, other, the final big concern I would have is whether or not there's enough experience at the highest level for them to really go and do something. A lot of the Norwegians, they won't have played under a severe, like pressured environment. They're, either they're playing in smaller leagues or there's a, very select few of them who have done it at the biggest stage. Yeah, I agree with you. If the tournament was in June 2020, then I don't think they'd, they'd have had a hope, I think. The extra 12 months, if football can return, and that's the thing, if, if football doesn't return, then who knows how any of these teams will be glued together. But assume that there is a assume that there is a run-up to the tournament, assume that they qualify. Firstly, they have to face a semi-final at home against Serbia. And should they win that a final at home against Scotland or Israel? Uh, then I, th I think there's a perfect chance to to bed all the players in. Haaland's only played twice for Norway. He hasn't scored for them yet. I, I appreciate all of that. But I think the extra 12 months gives him the chance to settle in. They've 
and just a chance to kind of get Odegaard, Haaland, all of them just playing together. I agree, there are so many ifs and buts. But if you look at players and you throw them all onto a page and you say, right, which collective group could potentially cause cause a stir at Euro 2020, I think Norway could. Yeah, but I think players thrown together don't necessarily make a good team. And I don't think there's been a huge amount of evidence to suggest, as Pete says, in a pressurised environment that they will be able to perform. And I don't think 12 months changes that. I do, though. I think... I think Ben actually raises a really good point in that we don't know when football's going to be back. So any of these well-drilled squads that do have loads of experience, whether how long they're going to have together, I think anything could happen now, actually. If we wait until next summer, we might only have, what, three months, four months, five months of football, possibly. If if the season goes back uh, at the start of 2020 to 2021, we're looking at yeah a full season of full season of football, but it'd be a very different world of football than a normal football season. So even your experienced squads, I think this is all up for grabs. To be honest, it doesn't really matter whether you have experience. They we're basically throwing loads of stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks with all of these squads. I think there is yeah there's there's something in that argument, but then I would probably say going back to Ukraine, a team that are set up defensively or who are defensive probably have the better chance then because basically getting that defensive cohesion is a lot easier and a lot quicker. And that's why you'll find in international football, teams will be coached to be defensive first and foremost, because you can do that in the five, six weeks you have with a team in a year. But then teams who are more expansive, actually the break could impact them more because the systems and the intricate complex passing patterns are much more difficult to get back into a rhythm of, whereas actually perhaps a team like Ukraine or Italy, because Italy also only conceded four goals, actually have the better chance in the current circumstances, depending on how football sort of progresses. Sorry about that Norwegian back line, actually, as well, thinking about what you said there with the, the, how a defensive team is going to do better. Like I Honestly, think- I've spent the last two hours YouTubing the, the Celtic kid. Yeah, he looks absolutely unbelievable. And he's absolute man mountain. Honestly, you only need to play one man in defence. Just stick him in there. He's the exception, not the rule. I just think that... They the only teams they played in qualifying were what Spain, Sweden, and Romania. Like Spain are obviously a decent side, but it's not as if Sweden and Romania are blowing the doors off teams the way they attack. No, but I'd, you can't say that any qualifying group is going to be much stronger than that. I mean, Romania and Sweden have both been at international tournaments recently. They have only lost once in qualifying. I don't think that it's a case of just saying, "Oh, this is a terrible team," and suddenly they've got a couple of good players that, if they can bed in, could be good. I think they're a mediocre team that, with a couple of good players, similar to what we saw with the Welsh, might just take them to the next level. That's all I'm saying. I don't know. Foley, though, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna quickly assassinate you to to deflect the attention. And um, you've mentioned that Ukraine are a really solid rock. Mm. Where are the goals going to come from? Um, they scored 17 in eight games in qualifying, which is which is okay, no problem. But only. Uh, their top scorer only scored three times. Is that a concern? Four, four, I believe. Snowball. I think it's three. I think it's three. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. They, they just Ukraine would be better off just getting Shevchenko to play up front. Honestly. Hold on, hold on. But actually, Snowball, what you've done is you've you've sort of provided an argument for me, right? Scored seventeen goals. We'll go with three. We'll go with three. Top scorer was three. That then therefore means your goals, your seventeen goals, are spread within your team. You were therefore not reliant. Can I interrupt? Hold on, pick. Top score was four goals. The, web, the website <laughs> I mean, I've got open here, statbunker.com, says three goals. I've gone to Wikipedia. <laughs> well, what I'd suggest is you close statbunker.com <laughs> and uh, leave it there. Um, no, but actually, in, in many respects, 
not having an out-and-out goal scorer can be used as a strength because your goal, you aren't reliant on one goal scorer. So say, for example, England. How many goals did England score in qualifying? Harry Kane scored 12 of them. If he drops out of the team, that's 12 goals you have to replace. If Ukraine's top goal scorer, Yurima uh, Cech, uh, drops out of the team, you only have to replace four goals. So actually, a team that scores 17, concedes four, but doesn't have an over-reliance on one person to score is a strength more than a weakness. Okay, I get that. But you said Harry Kane scored 12. England scored 37. Yep. So there's still 25 goals there in that team. All right, fair dues, fair dues. Can I, say, can I say, my issue with the Ukraine, right? It's a little bit similar in some ways to, to Ben's argument of Norway. Because I know that you've loved this Ukrainian team for a long time. And I know that part of that comes to how well they've been doing at youth level. Mm -hmm. I actually think Ukraine are in a proper weird position right now. Because I think they've either got too many old players who have passed it, and they got, or they've got too many young players who haven't, aren't quite there yet. They haven't got anyone who's sort of 23 to 28, 29, who's got that sort of experience and who can sort of lead that team. I don't think everyone in Ukraine sort of hoped that'd be Viktor Kovalenko, but he hasn't really done that yet. He's still at Shakhtar Donetsk. He hasn't moved on yet. And this, I don't have an issue necessarily with players staying within the domestic leagues. So I think that is quite good. But you'd have thought if he was really the real deal we thought he would have been, he would have moved on like Zinchenko did, for example. True. Um, a valid point. But what I would counter that by saying is it speaks more to the fact that this is a team effort with, with Ukraine in terms of they aren't over-reliant on one particular player. They've done really well at youth, but actually they've built momentum. Like they didn't qualify for the 2018 World Cup, but the group they didn't qualify from, first place, Iceland, second place, Croatia, World Cup finalists, third place, Ukraine, fourth place, Turkey. It was a strong, strong group. They haven't lost in 2019. Um, they're a team that are building momentum. I think the team ethos for me is what sets them out as potential dark horses in a tournament that I think will throw up huge surprises just basically because of what's gone before in terms of the lack of football. So yeah, I think they're well-placed to step up. Isn't it also problematic if we're just putting our faith in the fact that Yarmolenko's going to turn up and actually be bothered? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. if you get West Ham Yarmolenko, like, he's been, don't get me wrong, he's been good at times, but for what he was meant to be, he just hasn't been that. And I don't know what it is about him. Like he doesn't, there's always so much flash and so much promise. And I feel like that's the entire problem with the entire Ukrainian team is that there is so much on paper to like, but it doesn't get put together. But I'd argue that it does get put together. And I think it's been borne out through results. And actually, again, it goes back to a system that works because the players know each other. And actually, you're not overly reliant on any one player, including Yarmolenko, because actually they've found a number of ways to win. And one of the beneficial things of having a player like Yarmolenko is while he might not perform 80% of their games at a championship, he could be the difference in that one minute where they actually require a spark. So again, I'd see that as an advantage rather than, you look at him as a flourish or a garnish rather than something to be relied upon. And actually in tournament football, that's pretty handy. All right, Carrie, let's move on to, as I said earlier, trying to assassinate basically my own argument from, from last week for Lewandowski. If there is an argument against Poland, it's that well, we can get quite excited about Turkey, we can get quite excited about Ukraine. Poland have been here before. They've had Robert Lewandowski's torn it up in qualifying and then they've got to the major tournament and it hasn't quite happened. You feel like Euro 2016 was a missed opportunity uh, leading their quarterfinal against Portugal. I don't think they were behind for a single minute in that tournament and yet they still didn't win. What's to say that this time around it'll be different? Well, nothing, obviously. We don't know what's going to happen. But I think those experiences will be taken into kind of preparation for, for this tournament. And also, obviously, the fact there's a there's a new coach in charge. He was under a huge amount of pressure during qualifying, but he and his squad came through those ter terrible running results and that pressure that's coming from within football and from the media in Poland. And they came through it and they finished very, very strongly. So I think that kind of bodes well. 
Um, as kind of sure as we can be about anything at the moment, I think that actually stands them in pretty good stead. I like this Poland team. I think they've got something that well, Ukraine definitely don't, and to an extent Norway don't either, um, which is Lewandowski. Like he's probably the best striker in the world, if not in the top two or three. And I think because let's be honest, if you're playing Poland, you're going to devote your entire game plan to stopping Lewandowski. But he's so good that I don't think that's an issue. Like his goal rate for Poland is like over one in two. So I think it proves that it doesn't really matter. Like he's still going to get those goals. My worry, I guess, is that is he enough by himself? Because unlike well, Norway, definitely, the supporting cast probably isn't there in the same way. Yeah, it, it's a fair point. I mean, and again, there's no guarantee that a player is going to perform on, on that biggest stage. But again, I mean, you have to look at qualifying. It's not just about Lewandowski getting them through. They conceded very few goals actually through that through that run of qualifying too, despite um, the uh, loss and the draw that, that they weren't expecting towards the end of it. So, although they might not be kind of stars, let's say in inverted commas, they're not obviously up to the standard Lewandowski. They're still pretty good, and they're a solid unit. And I think that's the kind of thing that will get you through a tournament, certainly. Pete, let's try and pick apart Turkey. I don't know if anyone's got any arguments here. My problem with Turkey is that I noticed in your piece you used the phrase Turkish Messi. And that is not the first time that phrase has been used. I think every up-and-coming Turkish player seems to get tagged with that tagline. Um, my old team, Peterborough United, had a lad called Erhunoz uh, Tuma. He was also dubbed the Turkish Turkish Messi. Do you think it's just a case that you're just getting a bit carried away? Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a case for that. I mean, it goes back to what I said at the start. This country is unbelievably fanatical about football. Like, just the passion that they have. They've got Hamid out on top running the Houston for the whole of the country. There's a load of like reforms coming in. They've made these changes before and the young players have come through and the hype, the thing is the hype is always going to be there because Turkish fans are so passionate and the pressure is going to be so intense. But that, I would say, would come back to what I said to you about Norway earlier in the sense that these Turkish kids have been through so much already at such a young age. They've played in front of crowds of 30, 40, 50,000 fans, baying for the opposition's blood. It is such an intense atmosphere. And they've all come through it more or less. So I think that is what's going to stand them in good stead. The thing that encourages me about this generation of Turkish footballists is that none of them seem to be believing their own hype. They all seem to be bought into the collective. None of them think they're bigger than the team. And none of them seem to be playing, trying to live up to these stupid labels that fans give them. Charlon, quick question. It's, it's under, is it? Yeah, Cenk is under, yeah. How is he doing at Roma at the moment? Not as well. This season this season hasn't been as good. Yeah, because he made a phenomenal start and then he sort of sort of petered out a little bit. So my point is, if, if he's the centrepiece and he's not in form, then that surely takes away from part of the argument. No, I know they've got a crack in defence. I know that. I get that. The, the nice thing I would say in response to that is actually that this Turkish generation, the great thing about them is that so many of them aren't known yet. So many of them are about to break out and that could happen in the next 12 months. There's a little bit as Norway, I think that I think the extra extra year will really help them. And I think there are players there who are willing, who are able to come through and he'll be able to pick up the slack if under isn't playing as well this time next year. They've got options in very similar players to him who could come through and could play. That's the nice thing about this team is that actually there are options throughout the 23-man squad. Fair. Decent defence, that. Perfect. Well, I think having a stick or twist this week seems slightly... Silly, because we're all going to stick to our guns, I'd say. Uh, Well, that's it then. Um, I think the main takeaway we can take from this debate uh, is that Gareth Barry now plays for Wales. Uh, So, yeah, thanks to to everyone for appearing on the show. Thanks to Carrie. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thanks to Marcus. Thanks very much. See you later. And thanks to Pete. Thank you very much. Stay safe, everybody. 
And thanks to you fine bunch, huddled in your sofa, listening to our dulcet tones. See you next week. Bye then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 